I think both for me and also for a lot of people, navigating things with birth and pregnancy, it's like the first time that a lot of us really have to reckon with. If we have been doing the work on body stuff and we haven't really had any test of that work, like pregnancy and birth are going to be the first time that we really are kind of having to have that tested. Welcome to The Body Pod. I'm Elena. And I'm Justine. This is a podcast where we talk to real people with real stories about their very real relationship with their bodies. We touch on diet culture, body acceptance, finding food freedom, and everything in between. So grab a cocktail or some snacks and join us here every other Tuesday for new stories, new topics, and a big dose of body love. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Body Pod. I hope everybody's Tuesday is going really well. Um, our Tuesdays are going okay, right, Elena? I feel yeah. I feel like these are mediocre Tuesdays. Tuesday always seems to be like the busiest day of the week somehow for me. I agree. Probably my least favorite day of the week, but we're trying to make it my most favorite because of the Body Pod turning Tuesdays around 2020. Hell yeah. Okay, so who do we have with us today? This is an interview episode, by the way, guys. We're very excited about it. Yes, we are super excited today to welcome Hannah Davidson to the show. She is a researcher on caregiving and a doula and just an all around kick-ass lady. And we're just super excited that you're here and willing to share your story. Hannah, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you guys. So we're just going to dive right in and get started with the meat of it all. So when did you first get the messaging that being in a thin body was better than being in a larger body? Yeah. So for me, that was pretty early on. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about that yesterday, knowing that I was going to be on here today. And I don't think this was the first moment, but I do think that it was maybe the first moment that it became really concrete for me. I was in about first or second grade, and I remember um, my dad's siblings were visiting. His two sisters and my grandmother were also there. And basically, you know, I think it was just like general diet talk, honestly. Like it was diet talk and just talking about, you know, my dad, um, both of my parents have been like larger people my entire life. Um, actually until recently with my dad, which is kind of a whole complicated thing. And then, um, my dad's siblings have also mostly been larger people and my mom's siblings too. But in this case, it was just my dad's siblings. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just like, you know, I, I didn't have the sense as like a seven-year-old to be able to pick out, like, these are adults who are just like talking about how they hate their bodies, but like, I got the inherent messaging that that was the case. Um, And so that was like the first moment I would say. And then it just kind of, I guess, in a certain way spirals from there into a lot of like reinforcement around my body being smaller and that being an inherently good thing. Um, Seeing what it was like when I had relatives who got older and got bigger and how that was seen as like a negative thing. Was it something that you felt any pressure around as you were growing up? So I think my parents... this is what's tough. So I think they tried really hard to like make that not the case. I think that they, um, I think even if I were to probably talk about it to them now, they would maybe talk about that they, you know, want us all to be healthy, but that they really tried to not put that on us in the way that they got messaging from their families. And I think that the reality is that like, 
those two things aren't disconnected from each other. You know, like the way that you view your body as a parent, um, even if you think it's just in its own container, it's still going to be connected into how you think about your children's bodies. Um, and so I think that there was totally like passive messaging around like being thin um, and not being fat. Like, I think that there was also a lot of, um, yeah, like there, I, there was totally almost like a passive aggression that would happen where I think sometimes at maybe my parents, like they would reach like these kind of critical points of getting really like stressed out about their bodies and then they would just like project that onto us. I also think that like being a kid who grows up in a household where like your parents are cycling through dieting, like it just, it, yeah, it has these trickle down effects that, you know, it, even if they weren't sort of actively like monitoring our weight or anything like that. And I'm very thankful for that because I've had people in my life who've told me stories about otherwise, and that seems awful. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it still, it had these other really challenging effects that still sometimes stay with me and that I've had to do a lot of my own work around. Absolutely. And that's so good to recognize that because sometimes I wonder, especially with our parents, how, or the people who are raising us, because I feel like generationally it's gotten better and better and better in terms of the messaging. But I wonder if it's coming from a place of they just want you to be healthy or if it's coming from a place of they don't want you to suffer from any stigmas that they've personally suffered from. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think in reality, it's both, right? You know, it's it's some of it being, I mean, I think especially when I think about my parents, I think there is a lot of shame for them that's wrapped up in their body size. So my dad's lost a lot of weight in the past, like, year and a half, like over a hundred pounds. Um, and that's, I mean, it's weird cause it's the first time in my life that my dad's been sort of someone who registers as thin and someone who registers as being in shape and all these things. And I mean, I just, it's like, I hear it in the way that he talks about getting to this point that there's this feeling like there's this feeling of like all of this stigma that he felt on his body that I think he also sometimes projected out to other people as a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think they're just, they're really intertwined in this really unfortunate, really toxic way of this idea of like wanting to be healthy and then also wanting to like view thinness as this like, I don't know, almost like prize for being healthy. And also kind of combat the shame that comes with society. Like you, there's self-inflicted shame that people kind of put on themselves as a penance for being in a bigger body, or at least that's what I perceive. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of this like within your family dynamic. So how did it affect you specifically as you related to your siblings and your parents in that kind of ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the stuff I'm talking about on this podcast, I was even thinking about, do I want to share that I'm on this podcast with my family? And the short answer is, I'm not, I still not, I'm still not so sure <laughs> if I will or not, um, is sort of where we're at with it, is that like, you know, I think my sister's are, I think we're all sort of dealing with it in our own ways. So for me, um, I realized, I think in my late teen years that I was really looking at how, especially the women in my family thought about their bodies, like my mother and then like her siblings, my dad's siblings, and just feeling like they're, like, I think I almost had this sense of there needs to be a better way, <laughs> like to be in my body and, and to not really like come from this place of like hate um, that I think a lot of them sort of operate from when thinking about their bodies as, you know, bodies that became larger as they got older. Um, and 
So I think that I started doing that work in my late teens. My middle sister um, is shorter and a little bit curvier. And so when she gains weight, it's usually more visible. And I think she's unfortunately kind of bared the burden more um, than me and my youngest sister in terms of like people in our family paying attention to her body, making comments about when she gains or loses weight. Um, I know she and I talk a lot about this stuff, but I think that there's also still like the, there's a key difference in how we talk about it and that I think she still talks about this orientation to wanting to like lose weight that I always kind of am the one who's like, you know, maybe I guess if you want to lose weight, like you should be able to do what you want to do in your body. But also I, as your sister care more about like, are you actually like happy in your body. And I don't know if losing weight is always necessarily the way to achieve happiness. And I mean, again, my dad's a really good example in that I hear some of the things my dad says about, you know, like his body in relation to his weight loss. And I don't feel convinced that he's always like completely happy after having lost all this weight, even though I think that's the narrative and that's the reinforcement that's sort of thrown out there. And then my youngest sister, I think is in sort of she, I'm like, I don't even know where to begin with her. I think she's sort of making sense of it in her own way. And it's, it's oftentimes, I love my youngest sister, but she's the baby. And so it's always kind of hard to figure out how to communicate with her um, about this stuff. Like, I think that she sort of has the kind of anxious avoidant approach that my mom does, which is that like any mention of this stuff immediately kind of puts up a wall. Um, and so it's not even just sort of like, oh, they've bought into like the diet culture. It's like, oh, like, we're just going to not deal with this by, or like, we're going to deal with this by not talking about it, basically. Yeah, that's tough. And communicating about this, I feel like, is the true catch-22, especially in such a close family relationship, because diet culture has planted so many seeds that they can combat you with, you know? Like, oh, it's not about how I look. I just want to be healthy. Why don't you want to be healthy? Or why don't you want me to be healthy, you know? Yeah, I mean, and it's also, so a thing that I think has also gotten more complicated for me as I've gotten older, um, and also as my interests have moved into the area of health, um, is like, I mean, A, like working where I work, there are so many people who've internalized like a lot of these messages. Um, Like, there are some people who are in like the health professions who are really getting with it. And like, they're, especially a lot of my friends going to medical school, like people who are very like-minded to me are thinking about health at every size. They're like really thinking about integrative approaches approaches, and even sort of interrogating those and how those can sometimes be really complicated too. And I'm like, yes, like we need more of you in healthcare. But um, I think like my family, there's sort of this weird dynamic that will come up of like, well, like, you care about health, right? Like, don't you? I mean, like, that's what you're all about. I mean, look at where you work. And I'm like, yeah, but I I just, like, I think this is where we start to get into the fact that, like, I I think that, like, a lot of this isn't healthy. I think a lot of the emphasis on, like, losing weight and making your body smaller um, is not, like, I don't think that it's a healthy approach at all. And I don't think it's sustainable for most people. And actually, if you look at the research that's out there, it kind of says the same thing that like the vast majority of people who like lose massive amounts of weight, gain it back. The majority of diets don't work. They're putting people into sort of like a metabolic like stress situation. Um, and, And yeah, of course, like then that's where you start to kind of hit up against like some really like well, like welded beliefs that people have about this stuff that are really, really hard to disentangle. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you're in the health field. So how did you actually get into that line of work? And was there like a moment where you knew that's what you wanted to do? Or was it in part because of this? Or how'd you get into what you do today? I got into health-related work by being a doula. Um, So I can really kind of quickly talk about what a doula is for your listeners. Um, Yeah, tell tell me, because I also have no idea. (laughs) That's okay. A lot of people don't, and a lot of folks think that we're midwives, So, and we're not. So doulas are basically non-medical support people um, for folks who are going through really any time in the perinatal year. So that can be prenatal care, um, labor, postpartum. Usually doulas are um, people who show up during labor and support somebody who's like actively in labor. Um, I've done a lot of birth work. I've also done a lot of postpartum work. Postpartum doulas, it's a little bit of a different, um, it's a bit of a different skill set in that, so when you're working with somebody in labor, you're really meeting them like in this critical moment where I mean, labor kind of goes through all of these different phases of being in your body, right? Like there are times where you're really like in the pain and just sort of like, I don't even know if I can get past this particular intense interval. And then there's these other points where you're really almost in like kind of a, I would say like a primal or like reptilian state, honestly. Um, And so you're basically supporting somebody in a non-medical way with like comfort measures, movement, Um, all of that kind of stuff through birth. Um, Postpartum doula work, which I've had a lot more experience with, is kind of more of the emotional terrain of that experience. So it's a lot of, so what that looks like for me is doing a lot of household work so that way mom and baby can rest or not have to worry about anything like around them it's been like, let me give you a massage. Um, It's been, let me hold the baby so you can sleep. It's been processing the birth story. Um, In some cases, it's even been helping somebody write down their birth story because they, that was something that they felt like they needed as part of their healing process. Um, And so, yeah, that was basically, I started doing that work in 2014. I wasn't in school at that point. I was really starting to get interested and just all of the clinical interactions around me. You know, I was like looking at how the nurse midwives interacted with the patients I was working with. I was also going with people to their prenatal appointments just as like a person to help them think about the questions they wanted to ask. And it just, it kind of ignited something in me that I didn't know really existed before. I was like a total art nerd in high school. Like it just, I, I shied away from all science and math classes. And so this was, it kind of took me by surprise, I guess, that I found the medical system really interesting and really frustrating too. I mean, I think that all the stuff we're talking about is also really frustrating in the context of being a person who has to navigate the healthcare system. I mean, fat discrimination is real. Um, And so I started, yeah, it's like all of that started swimming together. And I was like, at first it was, I think I need to go to nursing school. I'm going to take the prereqs at community college. I realized I really wanted to get my like, degree in something more general. So I went to a liberal arts college and thought maybe I'd apply to medical school. Um, Where I'm actually looking now is genetic counseling because I realized I really want the human interaction and handling the science, especially the kind of rapidly evolving science because a lot of genomics is sort of, it's just like growing in terms of its integration into healthcare, like almost like by the year. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of how, that's how I got into healthcare. 
or anything health related really. And that's kind of where I'm going. Wait, 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 hold up. What is genetic counseling? <laughs> I was like, I have a feeling I might have to answer to that one. Too. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, so genetic counselors are professionals who basically have like their master's level clinicians who have basically dual um, specialized training in the clinical genetics and in kind of the psychosocial counseling. So historically, they've worked in prenatal settings. So think when somebody gets um, an abnormal screen during their prenatal visits, like they were usually um, kind of sent over to a genetic counselor who explains what that means, what, you know, kind of talks with people through risk, um, all of those kinds of things. But I guess as we've seen genetics and genomics really expand through a lot of the clinic, um, in different clinical settings, you know, now we have um, genetic counselors in cancer centers and in cancer care. Um, genetic counselors also work in like, um, there's now, I think, a lot more integration of them into primary care settings than there used to be. Like there's kind of all of these different opportunities that weren't really there, I'd say even like 20 years ago. Um, so it's, it's kind of a unique um, clinician role because, again, you're sort of handling the science and you're communicating and educating people on the science, but you're also sort of taking into account family dynamics, you know, because genetic information is something that's very sort of uh, based in our family systems. And, you know, you take like a family history and you do the whole pedigree as part of appointments. Um, and then also you have to sometimes deliver really complicated news, especially with like the group I work with, we um, do research with a lot of families with children with rare diseases. So having to tell a family that like their child has some sort of rare condition is, mm -hmm. you know, like that is some really heavy stuff that you have to really be able to sit with people for. And I think that historically, um, I've met a handful of medical geneticists, so like physician level geneticists who are incredible, but oftentimes, A, it's a specialty with so few people actually working in it, like there's a shortage of geneticists. And the idea is that genetic counselors are sort of this unique role that can kind of pick up some of the emotional way of doing that work. You know, they can take the time to sit with a patient for an hour and talk mm -hmm. with them through their concerns, get their family history. And they can coordinate, you know, with the medical geneticist to be able to figure out how do we most effectively communicate this information to people. It sounds like the human side of science, which is really cool. Oh yeah, that's, I mean, literally like that is my personal statement for grad school right now, like in a nutshell is just, this is the work I want to do because it, for me, it's always been about how do I kind of get at that human aspect of the science. Absolutely. So when, when you're doing your work now, what are you focusing on mostly when working with these women postpartum? Are they having trouble navigating through their relationship with their body or is it more through the experience? Because we really want to know more about the pregnancy experience. Both Elena and I are not <laughs> experienced in that arena. So yeah, I'd love to learn more about what you do day to day. Yeah. Well, so I will just sort of give the disclaimer that um, it's been a while since I've been doing a lot of birth work. Um, I have, so in the past, it's really been kind of um, a mix of things and experiences. I've worked with families where I think um, the thing that comes up that's the biggest thing is sort of as a family unit, having to reconcile what it means to add a baby into the picture. Um, you know, like 
babies are kind of like throwing, I had one mom who sort of described it as like adding a baby to a family can be like throwing like a feral cat into the picture. <laughs> um, you know, like, the, like you don't know what kind of kid you're going to get. <laughs> you could have a baby that sleeps through the night and like, that's awesome. You could also have a kid who has colic, which means they basically, you know, some people would describe it as like they cry for months on end. Um, you could have a baby that, yeah, picks up on sleep cues really well. You could have a baby who could give you really good sleep cues who never wants to sleep. Um, all of those things could just like sort of overlay onto the the existing relationship between a birthing parent and their partner um, in a variety of ways that you honestly don't know until you have a kid. Um, and there's not really any way to be able to prepare for it other than just being ready and open to talk about stuff. And that's separate from like expectations of in-laws, pressures that in-laws or your parents bring onto the scene. Um, and then all of that is separate from like the body stuff, which I'm sure is sort of the most interesting thing for this podcast is that pregnancy takes a toll on your body. Um, I think that sometimes in the so-called like natural birth world, which like I don't really like that language, but that's language that gets used like you know, there is sort of a bit of a normalization that happens in the mainstream that like a vaginal birth will be less complicated on your body than a cesarean. And while to some degree that's true and that a, a vaginal birth is not like a, a cesarean section, like which is, you know, when they surgically like remove a baby by like cutting into the uterus, that is major abdominal surgery. And you're cutting like across, like when you think about sort of how the abdominal muscles lie, like it's, it's intense and you do have to heal from that in a different way. Um, but really I think all birth is just exhausting on the body. And so you're kind of coming out the gate with a net exhaustion level and that's separate from breastfeeding and what breastfeeding does to your breasts. And what it means to sort of have this tiny human that is like relying on your body um, for anywhere from, I mean, really, I would say, regardless of how long you breastfeed, that baby is relying on your body um, for that first year. And, and honestly, like for most of early childhood, because you're suddenly, you know, mom or birthing parent or whatever, you know, like there's that attachment there that ends up forming that is both really wonderful. I feel like I'm focusing on a lot of the negatives. Like, it's an incredible time. It is also just a really, um, it's a really big upheaval for a lot of people, even like people who really wanted to be parents. So that's a lot of sort of, I guess, the themes that I've seen come up with the families that I've worked with um, is just sort of what it, like all of these different, both like body oriented and also like relational orientations um, to what it means to transition into like being a parent and making your own family. It's just interesting to hear a lot of this stuff because what we see normally on social media or in movies or whatever is that it's this beautiful experience and you are a fertile goddess who's created <laughs> life. And like, I, I want to have these conversations where we can talk more openly about the tough stuff. And yeah, I appreciate you sharing a lot of that. Thanks. I agree. And I think that what's interesting is that now we are getting into a space where people I think are trying to, especially like kind of the new generation of like millennial moms um, are getting to a point of being really transparent about this stuff and kind of sharing like a the just emotional toll that that parenting takes and also the physical toll that it takes and I I definitely yeah I have I have a lot of complicated feelings about that where on one hand I'm like 
yes, like, let's normalize this. Let's normalize that, like, you know, having a baby is hard on your body. Um, I also, you know, have had to, I mean, so it's like two things. It's that, A, there's also my own internalized stuff separate from my own history with pregnancy loss that we'll get into that I've had to sort of, I think there's, so one example is when I see really like, when I see people who are thinner than me, and I will say I'm like relatively thin, um, who are complaining about like, oh, this baby like ruined my body. I always kind of have like a bit of a pivy response. Like I'm a little bit like, that's nice. Like you still fit into like size four jeans. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, you know, like there's still that stuff that comes up that's like, I don't want to feel that way. But again, that's like, that's the wiring that we get, right? You know, like I said, I did all this work when I was in like my late teens into my early 20s around body stuff and I still have my own hang-ups um this I think that like um with pregnancy loss especially like I think that I think both for me and also for a lot of people um navigating things with birth and pregnancy are sort of the it's like the first time that a lot of us really have to reckon with um really like having our if we have been doing the work on body stuff and we haven't really had any test of that work like pregnancy and birth are going to be the first time that we really are kind of having to have that tested. You mentioned just pregnancy loss in general and also the impact that that has on a body. And we also do want to talk about like your personal story through this health work and also through your own experiences with your body fertility and stuff like that. So I kind of wanted to ask if you've had any personal experiences in that arena. Yeah, so I have. So I have had, I've had two pregnancy losses over the past year. Um, And so I can like really, I'll just sort of in broad strokes, like talk about them. And then I can kind of get into some of the details of how they affected my body and sort of all of this stuff. Cause I think they're both for me, they're, it's all really interconnected with each other. Um, I had an ectopic pregnancy last May, which is basically a pregnancy where in a quote unquote normal pregnancy, the actual, you know, like pregnancy itself implants in on your uterus and that's where it grows. And ectopic pregnancy is where that implantation happens, like not in the uterus. So like in one of the fallopian tubes, like outside of the uterus, sometimes for me, it was in one of my fallopian tubes. And thankfully we caught it early enough where I was able to basically get, um, Usually they have to remove like the pregnancy surgically. They caught it early enough that they gave me this shot of this like kind of not so fun cancer drug um, that basically like dissolves the cells. It's like, I mean, I always kind of joke. I'm like, it's really metal. Like it's really <laughs> kind of like that sounds really intense. Um, yeah. But um, that so that happened, um, and that was an accidental pregnancy. And then I actually um, purposefully was trying to get pregnant as like a single parent by choice. Like that was something that I was talking with people about in my life, and just thinking that you know, for me, being a parent has never been tied into having a partner. It's like if I have a partner when I want to have kids, like cool. If I don't, like. I'm queer. There's a lot of different ways that people can do that. Um, and so I got pregnant in September of last year and ended up basically going from having like this kind of short lived, but like really intense pregnancy to having a pregnancy that lasted a little bit longer, but that um, was really complicated throughout and that I ultimately miscarried at 12 weeks. So like right on the cusp of second trimester. I'm so sorry. Thank you. It was, I mean, it was really, it was really rough. And I think it's still, um, 
like it still stinks and these are things that people aren't comfortable talking about honestly it's something that like I've been really thankful to have like a good community of folks around me and have like a lot of people who I think are really like my friends who are really willing to hear me like talk about both of those experiences um and at the same time, it does still feel, I think every time I kind of open up about it, I still have this feeling of like, but like, should I, like, am I sure I should be doing this? Like, is that okay? Um, even though there's also okay. the part of me that's more political, that's like, I want people to talk about this. I want people to know that this is a thing that happens. Um, I mean, I think the stat generally that's thrown around is like one in four pregnancies ends in miscarriage. That is way higher than I thought. Yeah. I mean, which again, because people don't talk about it when it, you know, when it happens to them, I think like, you know, there's been, I think what's also really surprised me is how many times I open up about it and find out like at least one person has experienced it um, themselves. And it's just that, you know, like you kind of, I think that there's a lot of folks I've met who once they get to the point of having a kid, like it's just kind of, it's almost like it's old news, but when you're, I'm in this sort of weird liminal space right now where like, I'm not so sure when I'm going to try again to have a kid. And so that's, you know, that is the sort of, that is a part of my like reproductive history now. Um, and it's the thing I feel sort of most like proximate to, I guess, is just like, especially having a miscarriage at 12 weeks. I think that, you know, as a doula, I felt like I sort of knew what I was getting into. I had a sense of like, you know, I knew about earlier term miscarriages and how there's usually like heavy periods. I knew that like later term, like pregnancy losses, like I had a sense of the trauma around those. Um, losing a pregnancy in that middle space of like the beginning of second trimester is kind of a different animal because it's like, you're kind of going through, it's almost like labor light, <laughs> you know, like where I ultimately, you know, when I had my miscarriage at 12 weeks, like it's not, um, it's, it, it, it wasn't like a heavy period. It was basically like I passed a clot that was like the size of a lemon, um, which I have endometriosis, which is also a whole separate thing. So like, I, I'm used to passing heavy clots, but like, that was, I mean, it was like a totally, again, in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, I was in like that reptilian brain sort of mindset that I've seen people be in because I've seen what birth looks like. And again, it was not as like intense as birth is because like you just don't know that until you go through it um but like there is this part of me now that can really sit with like yeah but it was close um and it and it really was like this intense experience on my body I'm just curious when women miscarry do you ever feel like the reason that we don't talk about it is there a sense of shame attached to it totally I mean, I think for me, that shame is dual. It's like, I think that there's a cultural shame that I don't know if everybody feels this, but I definitely felt a little bit of this, that it's sort of like, I should, I'm young, like that I'm healthy, that nonsense. Like I should just be able to like have a pregnancy without complications. I think I totally felt a reinforcement of shame around that. Um, and then I think also for me, there was the added shame of like, you know, people in my workplace knew I was pregnant. Um, and they also, I work at a research institution where like most people, it's not normalized to like have kids at the point in my career. So I already kind of am a unique person in that role because I'm a bit older than most of my colleagues in my position um, because I was a non-traditional student in undergrad. So I think there was this othering aspect there that it was sort of like, oh, it feels already stigmatized that like I'm this, you know, lady having a kid on their own. I I think a lot of my coworkers 
either like, you know, didn't um, ask <laughs> sort of the origins of that pregnancy or I didn't really volunteer information. I think that there was, there was definitely a lot of that there. And I think a lot of folks feel that way after they miscarry. I think there's so many aspects of just having a body that we need to reduce the shame around. Just it can be in any part of just the experience in living in a vessel. And I think miscarriage is one of the prime examples of that. Yeah. How did it actually affect your body through these miscarriages? You know, when I said before that I think pregnancy um, is and birth are these sort of huge things that... Um, oftentimes force people to confront stuff with their body that they didn't before, just didn't make the space to do before. I think the same honestly stands for miscarriage. Um, and I think it gets talked about a lot less in part because miscarriage gets talked about less. You know, I, I think that for me, it's really my body basically before my first pregnancy loss, I have been about the same body size and shape for like most of my 20s, like 18, 19 through till I was like 26. Um, when with like some fluctuations here and there. Um, and like a, a thing I noticed almost immediately that like has still been hard for me to reconcile is like my boobs went up an entire cup size and just like didn't go down. And that was like just like one change that was like, wow, like this, you know, I, I have people in my life who would be like, that doesn't seem like a big deal. And like for me, um, you know, I don't, I don't weigh myself. That's like another thing I purposefully decided in my early 20s was like, this is this is a thing that's toxic for me is like, I don't count calories. I don't weigh myself. Um, and so I really rely on like things like how my clothes fit things like just, you know, looking at and observing and sort of really being in my body. And so even what might seem like a minor change to some folks is like a big adjustment for me usually. And so that was one that was like really big because I suddenly went from being somebody who like could very easily like not wear a bra and like kind of go through my day to day like that to like, oh no, I like A, need to wear a bra, B, all the bras I have don't fit me, and C, I need to like go somewhere and like get a bra fitted that's comfortable because like <laughs> once you get on that like BC cup range, like things start to just get really not comfortable sometimes is what I've learned. And I mean that one I'm sort of a little bit more like lighthearted about, it, but like the other thing that was really challenging was just like my body shape has changed a lot. Like fat redistributes on my body in a different way. Like I carry a lot more weight in my like hips and in my thighs now than I ever have. Um, and it's been really, what's actually, so the body stuff post miscarriage has been probably like, I mean, the emotional stuff is hard, but I think the body stuff does feel especially complicated for me because I think it's just, again, it's the fact that we don't talk about miscarriage and then we don't talk about how like truly like your body, when you had a miscarriage thought it was pregnant and then it wasn't pregnant. And it's the same thing as when you give birth and you were pregnant and you weren't, and now you're not pregnant. And so it's the same sort of like your body's hormone shifting. It's just that, you know, you didn't get up to 40 weeks, you got up to X number of weeks. And so, you know, again, with pregnancy and birth, like we're starting to normalize talking about how our bodies change and how like, you know, your body looks different, but there's not really any of that there for people who've had miscarriages. And so in my pregnancy loss support groups, like we talk about body stuff. I've had like a lot of people in those groups talk to me about like, you know, feeling like, yep, my body just like looks like it's three months pregnant, like permanently now. And that's a really complicated thing. I think for me, I have this kind of lingering, almost like resentment of like, I kind of will make the joke, like I have a mom bod, but like, I don't get to be a mom. Oh. It's yeah. 
I mean, it sucks. Um, and then it's like, you know, at the same time that I'm feeling that I'm also, again, it's where it's coming right up. It's hitting right up against like the politics I have around bodies where I'm like, you know, in my heart, I'm like, I want to liberate all of us from like the hassle and from the pain and the trauma that we hold around like our bodies needing to conform to a smaller size. I want to, in my heart, accept that like my body will take a lot of different shapes throughout my lifetime. And some of those may be smaller, some of those may be bigger. And I want to like, you know, I think that's really important healing work for me as being someone from my family of origin to be able to accept that and at the same time, it's like, in this particular context, that's really hard because it's like, oh, the ways in which my body is now larger in certain areas are like this kind of constant reminder of like, this body would, in certain ways, I think I look at my body, I'm like, this body would feel like normal or feel okay in the context of like being a kiddo's mom. And in this context, like there's not really space to like name or talk about that without it sort of being like I'm like talking about my miscarriage all the time and then that's where we get into all the stuff of like I need to normalize like the stigma and like we all need to or like destigmatize I guess not normalize the stigma you know what I mean no totally yeah so what kind of support is out there to help us destigmatize this well the one group that comes to mind I think that they're called share they have a whole network of folks who do um like coordinate either like pregnancy loss groups, miscarriage groups, things like that all over the country. I know in Massachusetts, a group that I really love is called Empty Arms Bereavement Support. Um, And they actually, they're amazing because not only are they doing the support groups for people who've actually had a miscarriage, um, they also are doing the work of training clinicians on how to support people who are going through this, which is honestly... I would say one of the biggest pieces of this is that, you know, it's, and it's for miscarriages and it's for people who've had later term pregnancy losses. And I want to note that, like, I just talked about all of this stuff in relation to a 12 week miscarriage. So that was the one that really, I think, resulted in a lot of really profound changes to my body and my body shape. Um, And a 12 week miscarriage is still intense, but it's not the same thing as miscarrying at 22 or 30 or even like having a stillbirth where like you've gone through all of the pregnancy stuff and you like are truly dealing with like changes that are like the equivalent of having gone through birth but not having a baby at the end of it so like this is all on a really complicated spectrum that like across the board clinicians don't really know how to I think support people through this um in really understanding that like tough emotional and like physical like terrain of being in a body after having a loss like that. Um, I also just want to say, like, if anybody's listening to this and ever needs a person to talk to, like, I'm here as, like, a friend. I'm here as a um, person who's gone through this. I'm here as, like, a doula, but, like, doesn't not in, like, it doesn't have to be in a professional sense. It can just be in sort of, like, that's, that's the orientation I take to this. Um, And I'm trying to think of other resources. Um, There is a woman named Jessica Zucker, who is a psychologist. She has an Instagram page called um, I Had a Miscarriage. And she's a really, Mm -hmm. so she's somebody who she's sort of focused her whole like practice around miscarriage support. And she's actually coming out with a book next year that I'm really excited about. That's about her own experience. She had a miscarriage at 16 weeks and that kind of propelled her into this whole world of realizing this isn't talked about. We need to destigmatize this. We need to talk about all the different facets of this. Um, and so she talks a lot about gr- the grief on her page. She talks a lot about just like 
all of this stuff. So I'd really, I, I guess I would really strongly recommend if you're looking for resources as someone who's gone through this, um, Jessica Zucker, or go on the SHARE website and look at, um, you know, where you can, uh, yeah, find support groups, things like that. And that also might be helpful for people like us who are wanting to know how to support our friends or family. Yeah. And I will say the one thing that you could do off the bat um, that is, that I think a lot of people just don't realize is so easy is like, just apologize without there having to be any added on anything. I think that too often people, especially with this, think that like the more words you add on to a sorry, the, the better it'll be. Like that if you say like, I'm sorry, it's just this pregnancy, there's always next time or something that people think like something about adding all of that means like, you know, it, it's hard because sometimes I think like the intention is there. People don't realize exactly how complicated the headspace you're in after that experience is and that it really is just so simple as like saying I'm sorry and being there to just listen. Especially because everyone's so different with how they grieve, you know? Totally. Um, well, we do always like to end with a final question that kind of circles back to your experience with your body. So for this one, we want to ask, what would you say to someone who had just gone through a miscarriage or who had had a miscarriage? I mean, I think the things I mentioned at first, I'd say, like, I'm really sorry. I'd say this really sucks. Um, and I would say that I'm here to hear your story if and when you want to share it. And I'm, you know, just here. Um, and then I think I would also say, like, you know, try your best to like have patience with your body and really recognize that like your body did something really hard, which, you know, at first I was going to say, maybe not everybody feels that way, but I, I think actually, no, like most people do need to hear that after they've had a miscarriage is that their body did something really, really hard and that, you know, you're here for it, like as a friend. Yeah. I think that's what I would say. Oh my God. I'm like, I'm weirdly emotional about this whole thing, but that's really great advice. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing all of this because I know it's heavy stuff from your family to pregnancy and all of it. We're really grateful to have had you on the pod. I'm really glad to be on here too. I know it's, um, you know, I, I realize like I'm sitting here and like, I've got this like smile on my face. Like it's, I'm, I'm smiling because like, I'm really here for, yeah, I'm here for sharing this. I think it's really important. And I think there's a lot of people out there who kind of who need to hear some of this and hear especially like the way that this just connects back to bodies and being in a body. And it's, you know, pregnancy in general is a weird embodiment and miscarriage is even weirder. So I'm really glad you guys gave me the opportunity to come on here. Thank you so much. I really, this has been so illuminating for me and Justine too, I'm sure we're just so not in this world. And I think that's part of the problem. That's why a lot of this stuff doesn't get talked about because there's just this divide between people who have experienced it and people who haven't. And I think conversations like this can bridge that divide. And so, yeah, just super grateful for you being vulnerable and sharing and your wisdom. You've got so much to share and I, yeah, just really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. 
Um, and also, if we had any listeners who like really resonated with your story or wanted to reach out, would you mind sharing your Instagram handle? Yeah, although <laughs> I have a really silly <laughs> Instagram handle. It's um, or just wherever they can find you. Yeah, yeah. Why don't um, I'll, yeah, I'll figure that out. So my Instagram handle is official guy theory test kitchen and I feel like I love that (laughs) (laughs) um but I yeah there's this part of me that's like man is somebody really gonna like if they listen to the podcast they might be like yeah I feel comfortable talking to this person but um yeah (laughs) I'm like it might be better to just like give them my personal email (laughs) okay we'll put your personal email in the show notes you don't have to say it um but that Instagram handle is fantastic thank you (laughs) But for everybody listening, I hope you enjoyed that Instagram handle as much as we did. And in the meantime, stay happy, stay healthy, be honest, and we will see you in two weeks. See you then. The Body Pod is produced by Elena Dorn and Justine Dorn. Our artwork is by Elena Creative and our editing is by Justine Dorn. Our music is by Dano Songs. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Body Pod.